is 2006, October 4th. Today is Lecture 11, The Calendar. We'll begin in just a moment. Yes, by the way. Good. We are starting to increase in popularity on iTunes. I happened to go searching for it because I loaded a new version on my home computer and decided to archive some of them at home just in case I can't get to my computer at school. And we are, uh, we are slowly but surely climbing up the charts, as it were, among the education sites. Uh, we're beating out some sites at Berkeley. That's cool. That's good. All right. Yesterday, we're, we're in the midst of a two-part lecture, in which I would subtitle The Astronomical Origins of Everyday Things. Yesterday, we talked about our timekeeping conventions, how we reckon time across the seasons, the month, the week, and the day, and then subdivide the day. Talked about the difference between the solar day and the sidereal day. Talked a little bit about time zones at the very end, which is sort of a little toss-off at the end to remind you that we talk about Eastern time. In the old days, we would often tell time by waiting until building a sundial or maybe just having a person observe and say when the sun was exactly on the meridian, set their clock to noon. And that's the way people did it pretty much up before the 1870s. At every location on the earth, in farm towns across the United States, that's how they would set time. It was only when there was long-distance communication did we have to coordinate time a great deal, whether it was communication by telegraph or communication by, by trains, travel by trains. Now suddenly, the differences of solar time from locale to locale became important. There's a story that's told by an, it's a, about an astronomer during World War I. He worked at Mount Wilson and uh, had been drafted into the Army, um, was, a, was an officer, and was up at a, a training camp in, I think it was North Carolina or South Carolina. It's always told in the, in the South somehow. And, and every day at noon on the camp, they'd fire a cannon to mark noon. And I got rather curious about this. We went up to the sergeant at arms and asked him, say, Sergeant, how, how do you know when it's noon? He says, oh, well, there's a, there's a clock shop down in town, and I set my watch down there when I go down into town every week, and that's how I know when to fire the cannon at noon. The farmer said, okay. But he was an astronomer. He was curious. He was concerned about timekeeping conventions. So when he got some leave, he went downtown, and while the other guys were going to the bars, he went to the clock shop. And he went down and found the proprietor and said, I'm from the camp up there. I'm an astronomer from Mount Wilson, and uh, they fire a can they, they uh, keep time up there. How do you set your clocks? And he says, oh, well, every day up at the camp, they fire a cannon at noon. There had to obviously be better ways of doing that. There were telegraph systems were set up. In fact, most of the major observatories had time services paid for by the railroads. They would hook up to a clock, a very precision clock, set against the stars, and then tie those into a telegraph line to automatically send out a telegraph signal at noon. The Lick Observatory, where I did my graduate research, had one of these clocks in, you know, as a museum piece. If you go up to the Perkins Observatory up near Delaware, if you ever get a chance to visit, it's a great place to visit. Um, they have one of those clocks, one of these so-called time service clocks. You can still see the telegraph connections on the side. So coordinating time was a really big thing. But this is a modern innovation. This is something that came up after about the 1870s or 1880s. And nowadays, we coordinate time using global positioning satellites and atomic clocks and stuff. But timekeeping is much more ancient than that. And today, we want to talk about telling time not on the short time, not day to day, but year to year and literally millennium to millennium, long time scale timekeeping, we want to talk about the calendar. The key ideas for today's lecture are that our calendars are based on the motions of the sun and the moon. So as before, most of our timekeeping was based on the sun and the earth. Now it's the sun and the moon. There are many different types of calendars that people have developed, all of them astronomically based. Lunar calendars and solar calendars and even some interesting hybrid lunisolar calendars are found, and they're still used to this day. 
Not officially, but they have certain ritual and cultural uses that we'll see in just a moment. Now, setting the calendar accurately so I can tell time, not just simply across years, but across centuries and millennia, is actually rather challenging. It requires an improvement in the precision of your ability to measure the length of the year. And this is going to lead us to a little bit of an historical essay on the Julian and Gregorian calendars. We currently use something called the Gregorian calendar, and we have a complicated leap year rule. How does that work? Well, we're going to see the origins of that in measurements of the orbit of the Earth around the sun. And finally, at the end, if we get to it, I'll say a little bit about the ADBC convention and where that comes from and some of its oddities when you want to cross lots of millennia and measure time. So today we're going to talk about t long time scales, the practical application of naked eye astronomy to the development of the calendar. In fact, in many ways, this application of astronomy is probably one of the oldest. Most of the astronomical knowledge that began with, even before the ancient Babylonians, was brought about because of the need to tell time, and then slowly developed into the beginnings of the science of astronomy. Well, this is a little saying we all know. This is the anonymous 16th century version of this. 30 days hath September, April, June, and November. February is 28 alone, all the rest of 31. Excepting leap year, that's the time when February's days are 29. There's a little sing-song that comes about from the 16th century. It's actually the late 16th century after the Gregorian calendar reform. This is a very succinct statement of a very complex formula with a long and interesting history. The oldest calendars we know of are lunar calendars. The reason for this is because the phases of the moon provide a very, very convenient way to keep track of time. And there's a lot of good reasons for it. How many of you saw the moon last night? I'm getting so much old to take a look at the moon when it's clear. I want to see a complete show of hands when I ask what the phase of the moon is. Start to get used to observing the moon. If I'd asked that question two or three hundred years ago, everybody's hand would have gone up because the moon was the calendar in the sky. You didn't go down to the grocery store and buy a paper calendar to hang on the wall. You kept time against the lunar cycle. And the reason for that is pretty simple. The lunar phases are really easily visible. You can see them anywhere from the hemisphere of the Earth where the moon is visible, and they're distinctive. Everywhere on the Earth except maybe the extreme poles, the moon is visible all the time. It's in your sky. Now, the other reason why the moons are very convenient, moon is very convenient to use as a way of tr keeping track of time is that 12 lunar months, a lunar month being that synodic month, that cycle of the phases from new moon all the way through back to new moon again, nearly fits within a year. A cycle of 12 lunar months works out to 354 days. It's just 11 days short of the classical year of 365 days. And this means with a little bit of correction, with the addition of an extra 11 days, you can actually build a lunar calendar and you can keep a lunar year. In fact, the oldest recognizable ancient calendars are lunar calendars, even back before there's writing. A lot of these are very common among nomadic peoples, but not necessarily. Even settled peoples have used the lunar calendar, and a lot of them have occurred among people that do not have written languages. And we see them all over the world. We see archaeological evidence of them, and we see the remnants of them in cultures even to this day. Now, this is arguably the oldest lunar calendar we know about. It's from a, uh, basically, it's a bone that's had a series of markings carved into it. This is the picture on the, on the left here. It's called the Abri Blanchard bone. It was found in Dordogne, France. And on the right is a sketch from the original article, this archaeological article describing this, showing the range of markings, showing what looks very much like the cycle of the lunar phases. If this interpretation is correct, that this in fact is 
a lunar calendar, a little bone for keeping track of lunar time, then it's more than 30,000 years old. So this is a showing that the keeping track of time by the moon phases is extremely ancient. It probably is even more ancient than this. This is just the oldest artifact that's come down to us. Even through the Paleolithic period, there are lots of artifacts that people in the prehistoric period were very much attuned to the cycle of the heavens and the cycle of the lunar phases. And the lunar calendar is as old as it gets. Now, the cycle of lunar phases is not exactly aligned with the year, but there is an interesting coincidence that occurs within this. This was originally discovered by the Babylonians, and it's called the Metonic Cycle. This 354-day lunar year, as I said before, is 11 days short of 365 days. That means if you built a lunar calendar, it would begin to drift backwards through the seasons so that your lunar month, of a particular lunar month, would occur roughly 11 days earlier in each subsequent year against, say, the equinoxes or the solstices. The Babylonians discovered, however, that that drift is not completely random. It's not just any old calendar that would do. There's actually a fixed cycle of repetition involved of approximately 19 years. What the Babylonians recognized is something called the metonic cycle. It's called for the Greek meton, who actually gave us our historical description of it, but it's clear that Meton was working from Babylonian sources, they found an interesting coincidence that 235 lunar months was almost exactly to within a day 19 solar years. That meant that if you built a lunar calendar, it would repeat back on itself against the cycle of the seasons every 19 years. Now this has often become the basis of calendar systems. You don't have to build an infinite number of lunar calendars to cover many years. In fact, all you have to build are 19 distinct lunar calendars, and they simply repeat on each other. So just like, for example, if you look at the academic calendar here today on the Gregorian cycle, I don't have to specially compute the calendar every year. There's, there are only 14 possible variations in the calendar. In fact, once a committee on campus figured that out, uh, uh, one of our astronomers, Jerry Newsom, a little professor who retired a couple years ago, was on the academic calendar committee. They would meet every year to set the academic calendar. He was the first astronomer ever put on there in the 100 years of the university, and he said, hey, you know, there's only 14 calendars, so if we make up all 14 now, we can disband this committee forever. And so they did. <laughs> it's great. If you recognize the cycles, you've got to be an astronomer to know that. All the English people thought you had, English professors thought you had to do this infinitely. The Babylonians, however, really were twitched out by the fact that the, the lunar calendar drifted against the seasons because they were a fixed people. They had to tie themselves down to the equinoxes and solstices. We have their records that they observed these. And so they decided to build an, a, a hybrid calendar with using the lunar month, but then interpolating an extra 11 days to keep everything lined up on the metonic cycle. So they're the first people to actually have enough long-term stability and a base of astronomical observations precise enough to recognize this near coincidence between 235 lunar months and 19 solar years of 365 days. Once you can build up enough time base of observations to recognize that, this practice of keeping time by the moon and roughly by the seasons becomes a straightforward mathematical exercise, and it marks the beginning of quantitative astronomy. So it's a very important insight. Now, lunar calendars survive even to the into the 21st century. Many of you may be cognizant of the fact that we are approximately halfway through the month of Ramadan in the Islamic calendar. 
The Islamic calendar is a purely lunar calendar. It has 354 days in, their in the Islamic calendar year. That means that the various months slide backwards with respect to the civil calendar, which is a solar calendar and keeps track relative to the seasons, as we'll see. So, for example, this year, Ramadan began towards the end of September. Next year, Ramadan will begin in early September. The year after that, Ramadan will occur beginning in August, and so forth. And Ramadan will slowly but surely slide around the calendar, but that sliding around the calendar will repeat itself every 19 years on the Metonic cycle. There are other lunar calendars that still exist, although they're now used traditionally. The Chinese and Japanese calendars are a lunar calendar. So if you look, for example, at a Chinese restaurant, it's got the little calendar in there. There's a cycle of lunar years going through this that's actually a recognition of a more ancient calendar the Chinese used for, for more than 2,000 years. The Jewish calendar. Again, those of you may remember Mo Monday, for those of you who may know, was, was Yom Kippur. This is an event in the Jewish um, annual holy year. The Jewish calendar, however, bears some resemblance to the ancient Babylonian calendar. And those of you who know your, your Old Testament will know that the, the Jews spent a large amount of time in the period of the Babylonian captivity. During that time, they were brought into contact with the Babylonian calendar, and when they went back to their homeland, they brought the calendar with them. And so the lunisolar calendar used as the Jewish calendar had its origins in the original Babylonian lunisolar calendar. They try to use the lunar month, but they line it up with the seasons, the so-called solar calendar, by sticking in an extra 13th month every two years. They're the months of Adar 1 and Adar 2, and you play with how those things are aligned, and then the whole sequence repeats on the 19-year metonic cycle. So buried, now this, this calendar is not used anymore in, in civil work because everyone has adopted the Gregorian calendar, but it is used to calculate the times of various religious festivals within the Jewish religion. And so here again is a remnant, probably three or 4,000 years old, of a lunisolar calendar going back to Babylonian times, but still used in the 21st century AD. Here's a beautiful example of an Islamic calendar. This is inscribed on the back of an, an astrolabe, which is at the National Maritime Museum in, in Greenwich, England. Uh, this was an astrolabe that had multiple interchangeable plates. It was meant as a navigation tool for traders and travelers um, in the Islamic world, and they had a way to carry a little pocket calendar, although it's kind of a little bit bigger than it could fit in your pocket. It fits in a big, nice leather pouch. But inscribed on this, this beautiful Arabic inscription on the back is a complete calendar and the way in which to do the calculation to tell what day it is when you're at sea or away from your central places. So portable calendars can be built because they can be mathematically expressed based on knowing what these precision cycles are. The other kind of calendar we can meet, of course, what we've already mentioned it, is the solar calendar. Solar calendars Mark time by the seasons. You sort of ignore the moon to a first approximation, and you look at when do the equinoxes and solstices occur. And if you do that, you're, you're judging time by how long the Earth takes to go around the sun once in its orbit. Set yourself up to making the major signposts by where the sun rises on particular days. So Stonehenge, for example, is an example of a lunar calendar calculator built in standing stones. Now, the earliest of these we know of comes from the Egyptians. Now, the arrival of seasons, and the reason why the Egyptians probably got into this, is because arrival of seasons often sets a lot of the pattern of life. In our own lives, for example, the academic calendar is tied to the seasons because the old academic year is tied to the old agricultural year of harvest and growing times.
So you know when to plant or harvest by watching it's the right season. You know a little bit about when the right weather is going to be. For the Egyptians, the annual flood of the Nile corresponded to the rainy season in the uplands, which, which the Nile flood was responsible for the fertility of the Nile Valley. So being able to mark that time was essential for the ritual purposes of the ancient Egyptian state. The other thing we use the solar calendar and the seasons for, as we saw yesterday, is the quarter and the cross-quarter days, the solstices and equinoxes and the halfway days, go back to really ancient, even prehistoric times as festivals, which were slowly adopted, for example, by Christianity. So, for example, the arrival of Easter and Christmas are actually reckoned relative to the seasons, relative to the motions of the sun across the sky. And, of course, it's very important that you celebrate a holy day on the correct day. And so it really matters that you get your calendar right. And so to do this, you have to have a long base of observations and the ability to make detailed observations of the motions of the sun to mark time on a solar calendar. It's a little bit harder than with a lunar calendar. You need a settled society. You need long-term records. The Egyptians have the first truly recognized purely solar calendar in history. The first evidence of the solar calendar appears as early as 3000 BC. And that's about the earliest of the tomb carvings that have survived from ancient Egypt. Their calendar is described, there's a beautiful one here inscribed on this, on this re reproduction here, this photograph of an uh, Egyptian calendar on the side of a tomb in the, in the valley of, of Luxor. Had 12 months of 30 days each. You can do the math, 12 times 30 is 360. To then build up to 365 days in the Egyptian solar year, they added an extra five, what are sometimes called intercalary days. They stood outside the 12 months, and they were five very special days. They were given over to festivals, celebrations, and such. Now, by the, oops, the year, however, how they reckon the year was not exactly by the sun, but by the sun and the stars. Because remember, the motion of the sun across the sky is with respect to the background stars. But you can't see the stars during the daytime. So you've got to have a sort of fairly sophisticated way of keeping time through the day to do this. The way the Egyptians did it was in July, of their, in their epoch, the star Sirius, the brightest star, naked eye star in the sky, rises exactly with the rising sun across the eastern horizon. Happens to be about the time that the sun and Sirius are on the same part of the sky. And as you watch the sunrise, you also see the star Sirius rise, and you can see it just at the beginning of sunrise before it too vanishes in the glare of the, of the, of the daytime sun. This rising with the sun is given the name a heliacal rising. Because that will occur on only one day, the Egyptians watched for this occurrence, and that told them when to begin their year. Now, by doing this, they would notice year after year that there were slight problems with a year of exactly 365.00 days. The Egyptians survived as a society for, for more than two or three millennia before they finally began to fade out in wars and conquests. As a consequence of that, they had a very, very long time base for observations because the whole ritual life of the Egyptian society was tied to the cycle of the year and getting it right. They worked out a way of doing these observations very early on, as early as about 3000 BC, so that within a few thousand years, by the year 300 BC, the civilization was still there. It still had re recollections of all of its history and its techniques. It's really hard to imagine a civilization that long. Think about how much had happened, say, in the Mediterranean to the European world between the year zero and the year 2000. It's a tremendous amount has occurred. Very stable society. 
they began to notice that the year was not 365 days long. There was an inaccuracy in there that the year was in fact 365 and a quarter days long. This is pretty good. This is only within 11 minutes and 14 seconds of the actual length of the year. So by having a long stable time base, by making very careful measurements, even using the simple naked eye technologies they possessed, they did not have an axiomatic geometry. They did not have a lot of the geometric and trigonometric tools of the Greeks, but by a very careful observations, they were able to find the year was not exactly 365 days. It was 365 and a quarter days. It's a tremendous achievement and very important to what follows. Now, the other big society of which we sort of draw our culture from is the Roman, Greek and Roman society. The Greeks had a variety of different calendars. They were sort of a combination of lunar calendars and solar calendars, and they're not too much of interest to us because they really didn't survive. The Roman calendar, however, is of interest to us because it's the basis of our modern calendar with major modifications, as we'll see. Now, the Romans had a lunisolar calendar. They kept a lunar month, but they also kept a solar calendar to keep things aligned with the seasons. So we see this sort of schizophrenic measure time by the moon and then stick in some extra time to line everything up with the sun. They ended up with the original Roman calendar had 10 lunar months with a few extra days and a couple of extra months even shoved into the mix to keep things force aligned with the seasons. Here's a beautiful example of one of these calendars in Roman calendars set up. This is two sides of one that was set up as a, as a post in the ground in a city square. If you look carefully, those of you in the front, you can see the picture here. These are the constellations of the zodiac. There are 12 constellations of the zodiac representing the 12 locations of the sun along the ecliptic through the 12 months of the year. And then under each of these, in Latin, is going to be the description of that particular calendar time, the names of the days and so forth. Now, the people who were put in charge of the calendar, just like all the other societies, the calendar was important for religious festivals, and so it was the high priests of Roman society who were in charge of setting the calendar. And they were the ones who had to keep tweaking it to keep it all purposely aligned with the seasons. It was not a very systematic calendar. It could be tweaked and twitched back and forth because they were starting to beat against that 365 and a quarter days and didn't really recognize it. It didn't help that the priests were um, also open to bribery, sometimes um, political favoritism, members of the big families who were given different jobs. And as a consequence, the high priests of Rome started tweaking the calendar to favor their friends and family and training partners. And the thing turned into a great deal of chaos. By about the year 50 or 60 BC, the calendar was such a mess, people were getting worried that some of the bad things happening were the gods getting upset because the festival days were not being computed correctly because the calendar was no longer right. And it was about this time that the uh, head of the Roman, head Roman council, a man by the name of Julius Caesar, decided to take things in hand and bring order to the Roman calendar. And so began, in the year 46 BC, the Julian calendar reform. Caesar knew that it was astronomically based. The Roman Empire had expanded to take up all of the Greek lands conquered by Alexander the Great, which meant including Alexandria and Egypt. And he called upon a Greek astronomer by the name of Sosogenes, who was working out of Alexandria, to work on a reform of the Roman calendar. Now, Sosogenes, because he was in Alexandria in Egypt, had contact with Egyptian society and knew the length of the Egyptian solar year was 365 and a quarter days. He used that as his point of departure. Sosogenes proposed a year divided into 12 months, 
But 365 is not evenly divisible by 12. So they divided them up into a cycle of 30 days and 31 alternating in time. So this is now the introduction of the 30 days hath September, April, June, and November. The difference was that February had 29 days every single year, adding up to 365 days. However, this year is 365 and a quarter days. That means every four years, four quarters adds up to a whole day of slip. And so every four years, one extra day was added to February to make it 30 days long to give you a year of 366 days in that year. That takes the slow drift of a year, pulls it back, and then the next four years it drifts and you pull it back. And so you forcibly realign your calendar back with the sun because it moves around 365 and a quarter days by adding this leap year into the mix. Now, turns out that this leap year makes up that difference between 365 and a quarter and 365. It's a little round off, right? We can't have a, a year start, okay, we're a quarter of the way through the day, new year. No, nope, doesn't do that. We have to work in whole number of years. It's just too hard to wrap your head around a quarter of a year. Days are got to come as a day. So they introduced the idea of the leap year to force fit the calendar back against the 365 and a quarter using 365 as the base, and every four years one would be 366. Now, the calendar was computed by Sosogenes in 46 BC, but in order to get everything realigned with the seasons, the Roman calendar was so messed up, they had to add 80 days to the year we now call 46 BC. So 46 BC is a funny year in history. It had 445 days in it in order to align the Roman festivals back with the solstices and equinoxes. Julius Caesar, shown in this, in this sculpture over here to the right, thought this was a grand achievement. He called it the, that year 46 BC would be known through history as the ultimus annos confusionis. It's the final year of confusion. We've rationalized the calendar. We've put it on a firm astronomical basis. And no more will there be any bribery and monkeying with the calendar. We will always be aligned with the seasons. The gods will be happy because we're celebrating their feast days on exactly the right day. Roman wits, however, referring to the fact that this year suddenly had 80 extra days rammed into it up to 445, called it the Annos Confusionis, or the Year of Confusion. In fact, a few wits called it the Annos Ultimus Confusionis, the Year of Total Confusion. Many people were rather upset with Caesar about this because he was basically usurping the heavens, as it were, so ambitious that he was going to set the calendar aright. This was one of the grievances that within two years led to his assassination. And, of course, if you want to know about that, go pick up a copy of Roman History or, say, the play by Julius Shakespeare, Shakespeare, uh, William Shakespeare. I'm talking too fast. Write fast, talk slow. Roman calendar, the Julian calendar as we now call it, worked really well after uh, Julius's uh, death. One of the months was named for him, July. Um, people began to monkey with it right away. For example, uh, Julius's nephew who later became known as the Emperor Augustus, they decided that he needed his own month, August. The problem was the month of August, in, or the month that was taken over for Augustus, that was the sixth month, 
uh, had only 30 days in it, and he really couldn't stand the fact that his uncle Julius had a month with 31 days. So they went over to February, grabbed one of February's days, shoved it into August. That's why July and August have 31 days. And February now has 28, except on a leap year it has 29. So that beautiful 30-31 cycle that Sosogenes set up got messed up for, well, political purposes. But even Sosogenes and the others who did the calendar reform knew that they weren't 100% correct. They knew that the day was, the year was not exactly 365 and a quarter days long. In fact, they knew it was a little bit shorter. At 365 and a quarter was just a little bit too long. In modern day, we measured the length of the year as 365.242199 days. That's kind of a long number, but it's just enough to make a problem. It's enough of a difference that by correcting one whole day every four years, the calendar will actually begin to creep ahead of itself, creep ahead of the seasons again, by one day. But now instead of being one day every four years, which is what you get for 365 round years, it creeps ahead by one day every 128. Eh, what's 128 matter? Most people didn't live past the age of 45 then. Who noticed? Well, Roman civilization and its successor through the Middle Ages, the Christian societies that grew up in Europe and the Mediterranean after the fall of the Roman Empire, lived for many centuries, and they began to notice. In fact, what you get is a slow slip of the seasons against the Julian calendar. The day of the equinox starts occurring one day earlier every 128 years until finally the equinox is occurring at the wrong place. By the Middle Ages... This slip had become about 10 days. So now the equinoxes no longer lined up with the calendar and were blowing it by about a third of a month. So it got kind of obvious. Why did this matter? Well, it mattered because of events at the end of the Roman Empire and the beginning of the Christian Age in the year 325 AD. This picture here is a picture from the Council of Nicaea, which occurred in, in Nicaea as a town in northern... In northern uh, Turkey, it's actually now a modern Izmit, they established the formula for computing the date of Easter. Even though we sort of think that Christmas is the most important festival in Christianity, the most important holy day in Christianity is the Feast of the Resurrection or Easter. And getting that right is very important. Because of the, the crucifixion narratives tell us that, that occurred at the time of Passover, it has to be tied vaguely to the, to the Jewish calendar, which is tied to a lunar solar system. So it's going to be kind of complicated. In 325 AD, they decided to figure out the date of Easter by adopting that the vernal equinox occurs exactly on March 21st. They simply asserted that was going to happen, tying it down to the Julian calendar, which was the calendar of the Roman Empire. Easter now is the first Sunday after the first full moon of the vernal equinox that does not coincide with Passover. So if you want to know when Easter is every year, find out when the vernal equinox is, find out the first full moon after the vernal equinox, and then find the first Sunday after that, that's Easter. That's how you compute Easter. And it had to be done right. The problem was because they adopted the Julian calendar, by the time of the Middle Ages, the computation of Easter was off by more than a week. And this is a problem. So here's an example of some. This is a, this is an, a medieval calendar. It's a beautiful calendar from the Très Richeurs of, of the Duc de Beurre in, in France showing one of these medieval calendars, showing the phases of the moon, the figures of the, of the zodiac are seen very faintly up here, and of course the activities associated with these different months. 
Calendars very much like this, of course, were decorative, but were used by the church to compute the times of the, of the relevant festivals, Easter, Christmas, and all the other feast days. And it was becoming dead obvious by about the 1400s and 1500s that they were doing it wrong. In fact, by the year 1500, the misalignment by 10 days was becoming unsupportable. And so Easter was being computed incorrectly. It was being celebrated more than a week after the wrong day. Other important holidays were being celebrated at the wrong times, and it mattered to get it right. So much so that Pope Gregory XIII, shown in a picture in the upper right, appointed a commission to develop an improved calendar. They were to get the best astronomers, the best philosophers of the day to get together and figure out a way to fix the, the, the Julian calendar of this error because it assumed 365 and a quarter days. Turned out the solution was much easier than they thought because of a, an elegant suggestion made by a man by the name of Aloysius Lilius. He was an Italian physician who was hired to do this. A number of other astronomers were hired, a man by the name of Clavius, for example, who was a Jesuit priest and the main astronomer of the Vatican at the time, was part of the commission. And as a curious footnote, one of the pieces of computation they used was this rather funny little book called De Revolutionibus or or Orbius Celestium by a man named Nicholas Copernicus. They didn't buy the whole sun is at the center and earth moving around, but his charts of the equinoxes was so precise, it was much better to use for the computation of the calendar. What he did was he started with the Julian leap year formula because it works for one day out of 128. But what he said was, look, what we're missing it by is a little fraction, which is kind of like every now and then we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. So if you make a century year not a leap year, unless it's divisible by 400, then you can actually take out that extra day that sneaks in every 128 years. So, for example, the year 2000 is divisible by 400, so it was a leap year. But 1700, 1800, and 1900 were not. So, instead of adding extra days, you add an extra day here, but only every 400 years, and then omit them three times where you would normally have put it in by the Julian formula. Okay, it's a little complicated. I have to write about 15 lines of C code to implement it, but it takes out three days every 400 years, which basically reduces the error from one day every 128 to three hours every 400 years. So if you do the math, there are eight, eight three-hour intervals in a day. You lose a day in eight times 400 or 3,200 years. So you've reduced the error from a day per century in round numbers to a day per three millennia. That's a big improvement. That's a simple formula. So we all got to see a century year as a leap year. It's not going to happen again until 2400. And it works. But there was that extra 10 days. We still were wrong against the Julian calendar. Well, hey, Gregory's the Pope. He can do whatever he wants. So he instructed them to take 10 days out of the calendar in October 1852. So October 4th, people went to bed at midnight and woke up on October the 15th by the calendar. Some people took this philosophically. Other people freaked out. Um, for example, the peasants wanted to know, does that mean we actually owe, don't owe 10 days worth of rent or taxes? 
And of course, there were a few riots and, and fusses. But within two years, people finally came to their senses that it's just an artificial thing. There really isn't a lost 10 days. And got over it and got on with the calendar and got into a calendar which was now properly aligned with the seasons. Now, yeah, okay, they, got, they still had occasionally some lingering arguments. Now remember, for those of you who know your history, 1852 is the height of the Protestant Reformation. So not everybody fell in line. Only the Catholic countries, France, Italy, uh, Portugal, Spain, fell in line. The Protestant countries, Germany, England, and others, said, we're not going to do this papish nonsense. And they kind of took a while to get around to it. In fact, it took them until the 1750s, where, you know, having two different calendars in highly commercial Europe was just not a good idea. And, you know, even though it was this Pope Gregory the Thirteenth guy who started the commission, it worked. And so, even if you don't like the Pope, you have to admit the calendar really does work. And so people readjusted it. In the year 1752, the Calendar Reform Act in Britain had to realign the calendar back to the from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar. By then, because it was from 18, 1582 to 1750, an extra day had gotten lost, so 11 days had to be removed. George Washington was actually born on February the 11th of the Julian calendar, but we celebrate Washington's birthday as February 22nd. That extra 11 days is because in 1752, all the British lands, including those restive colonies in North America, advanced onto the Gregorian calendar by pulling 11 days out of the calendar. So, we're all on the Gregorian calendar. The last major nation to go on the Gregorian calendar was revolutionary Russia in the year 1905. They stayed on the Julian calendar for a long time. In fact, if anyone here practices the Orthodox Christian faith, Greek Orthodoxy, you still use the Julian calendar. Still a rem remembrance of the, uh, of the Roman Empire, or at least the split of the Roman Empire. But everyone else uses the Gregorian calendar, except maybe a few hardcore enclaves of lunar calendar, for example, in areas which are ruled by primarily Islamic fundamentalists. When the Taliban were in charge of Afghanistan, Afghanistan used the Islamic calendar and did not use the Gregorian calendar of the West. Needless to say, this causes some interesting tensions. Now, the Gregorian calendar reform is equivalent to saying that the year is 365.2425 days. That Putting in leap year on a century year only every 400 years and dropping it the other three century years amounts to saying the year is that long. That's really what the computation comes down to. But that's longer than 365.422, which is about the right number to the fourth decimal place, or a difference of three ten thousandths of a day. So the Gregorian calendar is actually three ten thousandths of a day longer than it should be, which is better than being 11 minutes and however many seconds it was longer than it should be. So this means that we actually get ahead of the true solar year. The repeating cycle of the equinox is every 3,327 years. So the Gregorian calendar is going to begin to break down, and it'll break down in round numbers by about one day in the year 4909 A.D. Someday we'll deal with this. It's not going to be our problem. In fact, we're not sure whose problem it's going to be, but it's going to be their problem. There have been various calls for calendar reform over the years, but very few of them have actually gotten any traction because, well, <laughs> who cares? Um, certainly on those timescales. The calendar is now as aligned as well as possible. And that it works out with such a simple algorithm is simply because it just coincidence. 
I mean, the, the, the orbit of the Earth could have been something different and we would have worked out something, diff something else. It just turns out that this every 400-year formula that works out for the century years having to be divisible by 400 works. Works pretty good, but there's nothing magical, there's nothing deeply scientific about it. It's just a pure coincidence as to the way the actual numbers work out. A final piece of the calendar puzzle is this whole ADBC thing. I, I'm not big on BCE, CE, which is fairly popular among uh, academic historians. I'll stick with ADBC that I grew up with. I'm, I'm old-fashioned, maybe. The Anno Domine, or AD system of dates, turns out to be actually a fairly late invention. It came up around the 5th century AD by a man by the name of Dionysus Exiguus, Dennis the Short. Um, he was the one, he's responsible for counting years with 1 AD. But there was no year zero because there was no zero in European mathematics for another six centuries. So as a consequence, people didn't start talking about BC until 1627 when the zero did come into the mathematics, but uh, by then it was too late. So if you think ADBC is confusing, yeah, it is. Well, that's because there was no zero in, until the 11th century. Any questions? Okay, I will see you all tomorrow, and your homework will be along the line here, A through A through I on the right, and J through Z over here, stage left. <laughs>